Let's unite our hearts in, in prayer again. Lord, we thank You so much that um, in this broken world we have a hope. The hope is in You. Lord Jesus, You are beautiful, amazing. As we think of the strength that we need in the times in which we live, Lord, Lord God, You more than abundantly come through. It's us who are distracted. It's, uh, it's us who have uh, self-centered visions. It's, it's us who uh, move here and there. It's us who get pulled into temptation so easily. Yet You are here. You are with us. And You come today in a special way to meet with Your people we come, Lord, we need to hear from Your Word. We need the bread of life broken to all of our hearts. So we pray Your Spirit would work in us. Help us. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message and uh, this afternoon's message is principally about the idea of hope. And it comes at a time, I guess, where when we look around us, there's reason to be hopeless, right? Uh, yet, as I take a step back and look uh, at my life, but more importantly, as I look at who God is, I realize that He calls me into a space, a place of hope. I know that because I can see that in the letters that were written by Paul the Apostle and how hope just oozes out of those letters in the midst of, of great struggle. And not that you and I can be like the Apostle Paul. I'm not even sure if that's the right way to approach it. But clearly, God wants to, us to be all we can be in Him. And that is for sure that one principle that he wants us to grasp hold of. Otherwise, we literally will not make it. And that's hope. It's not only hope of heaven, which we'll talk about and is very important, but it's hope for the grace of God now in our lives. An amazing experiment. Uh, a lot of new psychology has been built on this experiment by Martin Seligman. He was a grad student at the University of Pennsylvania in the 60s. And he did this, uh, I may have shared this with you, but he did this little experiment uh, on dogs where they were put in a box, uh, a bunch of dogs, and they were not allowed uh, to get out because if they tried, electric shocks would kind of just cause them to go back in. So whatever they did, time of day, after eating, before eating, sleeping, nighttime, whatever it was, any time a dog tried to leave that area, a little electric shock would hit them and they would go back in. Then they took the same group of dogs and put them in another area, different area, and now there were no electric shocks or if they did, they tried another experiment, 
the shock line was very, very low. So all the dog had to do was go over it. All the dogs that were in the first pen, when they were put in the second pen, with ease to be able to get out, they stayed in the pen. They wouldn't even attempt it. And what he called that is learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. The aspect where you get hit, you get hit, you get hit, you get hit, and then you just sit down. And you don't just keep moving past. You don't just keep pushing past and finding out what possibilities there, there are. You just sit down. And this is what he says. I quote him. Learned helplessness is the giving up reaction, the quitting response that follows from the belief that whatever you do doesn't matter. Now, when we look at the Scripture and we look at the Apostle Paul and how he lives his life, and we're going to look at Philippians today, Philippians 1 and 2, and we'll be jumping around in that book. We see that even though the term hope is not mentioned in the book, Paul exudes with it. He has such great expectation about what God is going to do. Look at the first thing in chapter 1. I'll read the first uh, 11 verses there. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's pretty encouraging, right? It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. That's pretty encouraging. Remember, uh, Paul's probably in house arrest at this point in time. He goes on and he says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. There are partakers, there's grace in all of this. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, there's hope, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Wow. Paul here is in house imprisonment of some kind. He probably had the ability, I don't know if they had that technology of the ankle bracelet at that then, but probably the ankle bracelets were a little bit thicker and had a lot of rings around it attached to a wall. But anyway, he was there in house arrest. And we have this situation where Paul is looking at his situation, and what is he seeing? The cla it's, it's a classic term that's used in psychology, and that's it. When a person comes to talk with you, you, you hopefully, if the oppor opportunity presents itself and it's timely, you want to reframe the problem. Reframe it. 
So just think in your mind, if you were in house arrest for the gospel in Philippi, I'm sorry, in probably uh, a Roman province of some kind where Paul might have been, what would you be feeling? What would you be thinking? What would be going through your mind? I mean, I'd be probably crying like a baby, all right? I would, my tendency is to go negative, that, you know, I'm out of God's will, I must have done something wrong, you know, my father never said he loved me, that was a joke. Uh, All right, you know, you go on and on and on with everything that is happening in your life, and I'm not sure whether Paul may have had moments like this, but here in this letter, He sees something different. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's reframed the problem. He sees something that, you know, difficulty is upon him. There are other letters where he talks in in vivid uh, vivid clarity of the torture and and the trouble that he felt. Read 2 Corinthians. But here... He sees and he reframes the issue and is able to see something good that's going to take place. Listen, that cannot be done without hope and expectancy. It can't. What happens then is we move back into our own resources, our own mindset, rather than the hope of the grace of God. He reframes a trial and imprisonment. Now notice the next one, which is even harder to reframe. I know it's harder for me. Look at verses, um, I think it's yeah, 15 to 18. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, you know, reframing a difficulty is one thing. Reframing people talking against you or doing something with ill motives to make it harder on you is quite another. I don't know about you, but when I sense that somebody is an enemy against me or is really kind of maybe talking behind my back or doing something, you ever you maybe have a coworker where you know they threw you right under the bus. How does that make you feel? It makes you feel great, right? I mean, you're just like jumping for joy the whole day. You want to bless the person. Praise God. No, you're, well, I'm not anyway. It's like, mm, mm. all right? But Paul is reframing the whole idea. I'm sure he dealt with those issues. He dealt with his heart. I mean, he talks in other portions of Scripture where he says he is the worst of all sinners. Paul gets it. He knows how, uh, how problematic his life can become when he talks in Romans how he loves the law but doesn't do the law. But yet, something has taken place in his heart and in his life. Something. It's the grace of God that has enabled him to move past that and to reframe it and to not only be okay with it, I mean, if I'm okay with it, if I'm able to walk through it and be calmed down and everything's good, 
I'm good. But he's also able to say, not only is he okay, he's seeing something going on where God's gospel is being preached. Praise him that something good is actually happening out of evil. That's classic reframing. That's where Paul is at. And that's what hope does in our hearts. He, even in ill will, he sees something positive. He sees God working. Not only that, look at, the, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I get a little excited about this. And I did have too much caffeine this morning. And I say that every time I'm here with you, but it's really true. So I'm holding it, I'm holding it back. But look at the end of the chapter, chapter 1, verses 22 to 26. He says, for if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for, labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, hope. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Notice here. Now, now Paul is face to face with the idea that I might die, which is really going to be great, uh, but I, I still might be here. And so I expect really because of the need of the church and what God is doing and what I'm sensing that God is going to actually get me out of this and enable me to continue to minister. Is that hope or what? I mean, you know, this is pew-jumping material where Paul is actually getting to the place where he's saying, look, death may come, but, you know, I can really understand why God may want me here, and so I'm going to trust Him. I believe He's going to get me out. Expectation, hope, the grace of God working in His life. It's amazing. And then chapter 2, here we get it all. And so often I just read through these verses, but listen to what he says. He says, so if, and it's really more like since, chapter 2, verse 1, since there is any encouragement, I mean, of course there's encouragement in God, right? He's not saying if there is, like maybe tomorrow I'll wake up and God will hit me with some encouragement. He's basically saying since there is this, since there is encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, is there comfort from love of each other and the love of God? Amen. Any participation in the Spirit. I wonder if the Spirit is really participating. No, he's expecting it. He's expecting the Spirit of God to work. He says, since all these things complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is expectant. And he's encouraging the Philippians to be expectant of God working in his life and in their lives. Are we? Are you? Am I? Expectant. Expecting God to work. We come to the morning meeting. It's a beautiful meeting this morning. We come expectant. Waiting for the Spirit of God to work in our midst. We open our, our, our time of teaching with a time of worship. And we come expecting. Wanting God to move in us. And to work in us. And to do things that 
really sometimes are beyond what we normally would do. Listen, uh, you, I'll, I'll say because I think you guys love me enough. But, you know, you, you, guys, you guys are wonderful. Uh, but, you know, when I'm playing up there, I want to like jump out of my skin. I, I kind of want to do one of those Pete Townsend kind of like, bam, bam. And, and you guys are just like, um, wow. All right, now, I'm not criti- Am I criticizing? It's not critical, is it? Yeah, I am criticizing. All right, so uh, I'm not being critical. Look, here's the deal. You, you don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to do anything. But here is the deal. Your heart has got to be doing it. Amen? All right, it's, it's, all right, I'm not saying this proves that you're, you're worshiping God. I'm not saying sitting down proves that you're worshiping God. But you know in your heart, are you all in singing, worshiping? Oh, you know, what will he say? What will she say? You know, you, going go to heaven you're gonna, before God, you're going to really care what your neighbor says. No. No. Okay? God does show up. He is, He has shown up. He is with us. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says about this whole idea. Because when I ask the question about, do I hope, do you hope, do we expect God to work? I think sometimes we have a caricature of who God is, and we don't understand what He is all about. The desire He has for us in our lives Although we are first fruits, he wants to work and show us heaven here. This is what he says A lie about God is a lie about life. Nothing counts more in, any, in the way we live than what we believe about God. A failure to get it right in our minds becomes a failure to get it right in our lives. A wrong idea of God translates into sloppiness and cowardice, and fearful minds, and sickly emotions. Knowing the right things about God and believing them is key to all this. And He desires us to be a people of hope. If you're taking notes, the first point is basically this. Hope is evidenced by its impact in how you think. Hope is evidenced by how you think. Just do a thought log in a day. What you think about, what goes through your mind. Is it filled with hope? Or is it filled with fear? And then you see and apply Scripture to those things so that you can move into this realm of expecting God. That's the first one. But not only that, hope then shows up in behavior too. Look at Look at Paul's heart. I mean, we don't, we don't have the time this morning to look at all the verses, but Paul mentions the word gospel in this four-chapter book nine times. Nine times. Now, in Romans, which the book is all about unpacking the gospel, guess how many times gospel is mentioned in Romans? Nine times. So Paul is, you know, obviously he thinks the Philippians understand where he's coming from. And he is just very passionate, obviously, about the way he reframed things of spreading 
the gospel, of moving the gospel outward, of impacting whatever community he was in. He was thankful that he was able to even witness to the, uh, the men who were watching him. Paul had a desire to move the truth of Jesus Christ into the entire world. God put that in his heart. Incredible. And so hope should bring that as well. It affects our behavior. Check out what he says later on to the Philippians because the Philippians caught the passion. See, this is the thing that we really have to be careful of. We as Christians know so much about the Bible. But does our knowledge of the Bible match what we do? Does it match what we do? Paul here does show that the Philippians in many ways matched what he did. Look at verse 5. It says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They were with him. Look at 7, verse 7, the end of the verse. It says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the Bible. We won't take the time. You know the word is koinonia. It's being together with Paul. They were with him. They participated in something with him. They gave financially to him. You see it later in the, and at the end of the book. They sent aid through Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verse 25. They had this deep commitment of love with Paul. This is probably the warmest letter in all of the New Testament about Paul and his love for a church. It's incredible. They worked together with Paul. He says in chapter 4, Euodia and Syntyche, they were fellow workers with Paul. These people were all in. And so the hope that Paul had and the behavior that he did affected the church. And they were also involved in the gospel in a very intimate way. You might say, okay, well, that's great for the Philippians, but you got to remember something. Philippi, Philippi was the Rome away from Rome. You know what I mean by that? In other words, it was the vacation spot or a spot where the Caesar would go to kind of hang out. So if you went to Rome and saw all the splendor of Rome, you can go to Philippi and you would find a mini Rome. Just a mini one. If the Caesar came and they had games in their Colosseum, what would happen when Caesar would come in? It's like the jet game today, right? What would happen if Caesar came to the jet game? Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to put that together. That just is not going to work, Gerard. Just back out of that. All right, anyway, you get the idea, okay? A big thing. And what do you do when dignitaries come? If the president came to the jet game, there might be some kind of, you know, honoring the president being there. Well, Caesar, it's a little different. We're not talking... <laughs> We're not talking about elected officials. We're talking about uh, a kind of an aristocracy kind of thing where this guy is the head. And when he came in, everybody stood and hailed the Caesar. Imagine if you're a Philippian Christian and you're going to this thing and you don't hail the Caesar. What happens? See, the stakes were very high for the Philippians. Persecution was at least uh, on their doorstep. 
regarding what they were going to do and not honoring this whole idea of Caesar. And you might say, really, Gerard? If you look in chapter 2, one of the chapters that we love most in Philippians where Paul talks about the glory of Christ. If you look at verse 8, verse 9 of chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Now, to us, we get it. You know, Jesus is the ultimate. But then, part and parcel of their culture was this idea that the Caesar was the ultimate. It was in everything that they did. All their celebrations, at least if you were a Gentile, everything else that went along was all around the Caesar and what the Caesar thought and did. And so when Paul writes this, do you see what he's saying? How this hits the culture right in the face. He says Jesus is the one who's highly exalted, not the Caesar. He's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And then he says, so that at the name of Jesus, not the Caesar, every knee will bow, not to the Caesar, but to Jesus, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you know they use the word Lord for the Caesar? You see, Paul is just taking the culture and throwing it on its ears and saying, No, it's not the Caesar, although he may be doing very nice things for for your culture and your ability and picking up your trash, but Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. He is the one that you bow to. So the Philippians were equally in a similar situation as Paul, although not in jail. And persecution was close at hand for them. And yet they are in complete fellowship with Paul. You see, their hope, his hope, became their hope. His actions became their actions. Let me give you a principle. Hope not only makes you think differently, but it also makes you act differently. And so, you might be saying, well, you know, Gerard, I'm not really the evangelist. I'm I'm not the type of person... Yep, no problem. I get that. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the elder, full-time worker. I'm supposed to be the one who it's easy for me to talk to people. It's, it, look, it's not. Especially in this culture, we're kind of like, oh, what do we say? When do I say it? How do I say it? Give them a track. Walk away. You know, what do we do? What do we do? But the point is this, is that wherever you start right where your sweet spot is. You know what that is? You know, in baseball, the sweet spot? Boop, the ball's got to hit the right part of the barrel for it to go. You don't even have to swing that hard. As long as you hit it solid on the part of the barrel, guess where it's going? Going, going, it's gone, right? Or as uh, John Sterling says, "Ah!" no, never mind, sorry, I won't go. I'm a Yankee fan, sorry, so I really get into that stuff. Um, How many Yankee fans are here? Yes! All right, revival has started. What was I even saying? (laughs) Going, going, gone. All right? So, you know, the sweet spot. Start with your sweet spot. Okay? You may be a type of person who loves to help. 
loves to do stuff that is simple. And Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all for the glory of God. That is important. That is evangelism. That shows people that you have a different attitude toward life. Start there. And then see what God opens up. Just be willing to be open to what God is going to do. And He will show up. The Philippians had that kind of openness. Now you might be thinking, Are you, but Gerard, you know, it's not only that, but I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm, you know, how could God use a sinner? Now this is where we get a little bit, uh, you know, I have to be careful here uh, because we tend to be like, you know, if people are sinning, God puts them on the shelf. Look, I'm just telling you what the Word of God says here, right? If you look at chapter 2 in verse 3, Paul mentions, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, he's just not picking that out of the air. The Philippians had problems with this. This is a group that's being used by God. This is a group that Paul loves. This is a group that God's grace is working through. And yet, there was stuff in there with selfish ambition. He's saying, don't go there. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I I mean, if I applied that verse, I I was just complaining about you. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't be preaching. You, You follow what I mean? I, if I stopped grumbling, I, I tried to do that like for about an hour, and it really was a positive thing. I felt like, man, I feel lighter today. I feel much better. Because, you know, oh, look, this morning, I, I told you last week that my daughter and son-in-law are living in the house, right? And uh, we've, ha- we've been busy with my wife's father-in-law and his illness. Uh, you know, this morning I get up, and what is left for me for breakfast? Cheerios. That's it. There's some milk. Cheerios. I haven't eaten Cheerios in like three decades. Okay? I have my... uh, This is the cereal I like. It's kind of organic, or at least they tell me it is on the box. All right? I, I do stuff with it, with milk and maybe a banana or some fruit. I go get the hot coffee, I go to my chair, you're going to think, and he has his quiet time. No, I open up my news app and start reading stuff. It is just a glorious time. Well, this morning, I couldn't do it with my nice cereal. I had to have Cheerios. I almost went to the bagel store, but I didn't. That was a good choice, right? You see, this is where we go. We grumble. You know, why, why do they... Why don't they just replace it? The cheese, the sliced cheese. We, I went and bought a pound of... <laughs> you know what this is like, right? Uh, a pound of sliced Land O'Lakes white American, okay? I bring it home Monday, Wednesday. I'm going to make a sandwich. It's gone! Gone! Where did it go? What? I want my food. I want it now, when I want it. All right? Now, you know what? You think that's, you're like that too, you know. 
You are. I know you are. Because look at the people of Israel. God delivers them through the Red Sea, brings them through, feeding them day and night. They complain. We hate this manna. This stuff stinks. Enough is enough. All right? So you get quail. You know, but now we, we don't have enough to drink. Give me a break. That's all they did was grumble. 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 And I'm going to be bold. You do it too. <laughs> all right, we all do it. Instead of just saying, wait a second. You know, I'm just fortunate to be able to breathe and walk. And see the beauty of this day. One brother prayed that way. What a gift today is. It's glorious. And we could come and worship in this glorious day. Right? It's incredible. But we grumble. You know, they, they have, if you start to think about that, uh, we would really talk differently, wouldn't we? I mean, you know, all the stuff. Grumbling sometimes moves into the realm of gossip, right? We grumble about people. Oh, man, Lauren, she's, oh, I shouldn't even mention my daughter's name. It's on tape. Is this being taped? Can you cut that part right out? I just, all right. You know, why did... <laughs> I like that. Uh, all right, anyway, I, I'll stop grumbling because now I'm going to grumble. So, but I, you know, whatever it is. Paul, the Philippians were grumbling, okay? They were grumbling. Notice what else what was going on. I mean, my point is this, that these were people who were sinners just like you and me. Just like you and me. Paul says he labored with Euodia and Syntyche. And they had differences. Can you imagine in a letter of the Apostle Paul that their names would go down in history? Not only because they worked side by side with Paul, but because they were having an argument and couldn't get along. Now, I know that doesn't happen here at Terrell Road. But it sure does happen at Rutherford Bible Chapel. Okay? You know, this whole idea where we are not perfect. We are going to feel it. This is, I, I love this illustration because it really does run home to the whole idea of who we are and what we're like. One three-year-old explained their disobedience being in the kitchen atop a chair eating a freshly baked cookies her mother just made. When found by her mother who had asked her what she was doing on top of the chair because her mother already told her not to eat the cookies before dinner, the child sheepishly turned and faced her mother. Then the mother then frustrated by her daughter's disobedience, said, I told you to wait until after dinner before you could have some cookies. Her daughter then, with the innocence of a newborn and the deception of a hacker, said this, I just climbed up to smell them, and my tooth got caught on one. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's me, and, and that's you too. You see, biblical hope, even in the midst of us being fallen people, God gives grace. God wants to move us to obedience. And as we dwell on Christ, He will enable us to make the choices to not only have hope change our mind, but change our behavior and actually not grumble as much. The last thing, and we'll close because it it, it's 12, is that hope enables us to feel differently. Okay? 
Because we're trusting in the truth. We're trusting in what really is truth. Even in pain, one writer says, hope is a virtue that is born out of pain, sorrow, and loss because you expect the goodness of God at some point to show up. And it causes your feelings to change. When Paul says in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Those phrases aren't together just by whim of religious talk. You're going to have tribulation, but move your heart to rejoice in hope. C.S. Lewis says this, and I'll close. Hope means a continual looking forward to the eternal world. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this, in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. You've heard the phrase, you know, she or he is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That's not true. Because if that is true, that person isn't heavenly minded. Hope changes the way you think. Hope changes the way you behave. Hope changes the way you feel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the resurrected God, the one who lives. We sang it this morning, and you're resurrecting me. You're resurrecting us, and we praise you for that, Lord. And so we just ask that that future hope that we have would become part of our every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.